0: This is the Naked Genetics podcast, taking a look inside your genes.
1: Whether we like it or not, we're heading further along the road of genetic testing, not just for single genes, but for complex diseases and even ancestry. But can the results of gene tests change our behavior?
2: People who did have the higher risk variants were indeed more motivated than those who had the lower risk variants.
1: Plus, colouring crows, electric eels, glowing chromosomes, and a sketchy gene of the month. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for July 2014 with me, Dr Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Thanks to advances in technology a day when we might each have our own personal genome at our fingertips is coming ever closer but what can people do with this information and what are the issues involved to get to grips with this brave new genetic world i spoke to dr saskia sanderson from the health behavior research center at ucl and the Icahn school of medicine at mount sinai in new york to start with what exactly do we mean by genetic testing so genetic
3: testing it you know, really ranges uh, from uh, single genetic tests for gene variants that we really know quite a lot about so a good example of that would be uh, the BRCA1 and 2 gene variants that are strongly associated with risk of breast cancer. Then you, you have other genetic tests for single, for single gene variants um, which really we use for research purposes where you're looking at you. Know, single gene variants associated with a very slightly increased risk of a common complex disease like heart disease, lung cancer, that kind of thing. But those kinds of tests have also, for the, for the last few years, been available in uh, direct to consumer. So to
1: the general public, you can get one on the internet, basically?
3: Yes, although that has recently changed. Uh, there's, there's sort of, there have been uh, developments recently that have made that less... Less available to people, um, but I think we might be in a sort of moment in time where it sort of is less available. I think it's probably going to come back again. We also have genetic testing for ancestry, which a lot of people are really interested in at the moment. Um, you know, with all, so many people are interested in genealogy, there's a huge. There, actually, that is a very kind of um, sort of booming industry, if you like. The kind of recreational genetics. Yes, but recreational, very specifically about where did you come from. Very specifically about you know that side of things, rather than the disease risk side, or this will help you about your health. It's basically, am I a Viking? Yes, (laughs) exactly that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And uh, and now we're starting to move to an era where we have the ability to sequence entire genomes. People can have their whole genome done. Is that something that's starting to become more common? And will it become commonplace in the future?
3: I think we're certainly seeing more and more of it. Obviously, I mean, you know, we know that. You know, of course, it's only you know, a matter of 15 years ago, it cost you know, $3 billion to see, and, and f- took 15 years to sequence the first human genome. You can now do it for $5,000 and it co- takes a few days. So you know, it's certainly becoming clearly more commonplace. It's happening a lot more for research, for research purposes. Many people are having their genome sequenced now um, as part of research studies. We're certainly seeing more of it, but I wouldn't say it's commonplace. Yet, yeah, you know, it's still, we're still a long way to go, we're still a long way from having that, you know, all of us having our whole genome on a USB stick that we take to our doctor, you know, carry around with us. It's, that's not going to happen for a while, but more and more people are having it done. And, you know, in the UK, just last year, we had, you know, we, we now have the, the launch of the 100,000 Genome Project, where there are going to be thousands of people within the NHS having their genome sequenced. Um, for, you know, both clinical and research purposes. So it's likely that in the
1: future, you know, more and more of us in the general public are going to have to grapple with quite complex genetic data. You know, we, we hear the language of genes in the headlines, you know, gene for this, gene for that. People are going to have to start engaging with genomic testing and genetic testing. What do you think are some of the kind of issues that that are going to come up or are coming up already?
3: I mean, I think what you just said is that one of the first things that we need to make sure that people do start, that we start getting across, which is there are not genes for anything. You know, we have variants within genes that affect how the gene works, how the protein product works, and how, and basically that you know it's these variations in in your DNA that um, uh, affect your disease risk, affect how tall you are. You know there aren't genes for heart disease. You know there aren't genes for disease. Uh, there are genes that do things, and sometimes they work better, and sometimes they work worse. So I think that's obviously one of the things that we will, um, you know, that we need to make sure that. It's a starting point, that's where we need to make sure people understand. You know, many people argue that genetic information is just one more piece of health information in the way that your blood pressure is information about your risk of disease, your, and this is another piece of information. Um, and I think in many ways that's true, but I do think genome sequencing takes us to a whole other level where we're now just, people are going to have to get their heads around a large amount of data that said, there is another important consideration, which is that I think we're used to thinking about tests as a sort of one-time test. And what we may also sort of want people gradually to kind of get their heads around as well is that having your genome sequence might be something that happens at one point, and then it's a resource. It's not actually something that you get all the results from in one go. (laughs) Here you are, off you go. That's right. This is you on your USB stick. Actually, what... Might happen, and what's probably more likely is that you know you do have your genome sequence, but then that can be accessed at different times in your life and for different purposes. So you know, so then you access it and perhaps when you're a reproductive age, thinking about having children. Um, perhaps when you um, it looks like you know certain diseases developing, there will be different things in your life where different times in your life where different bits of your genome or different looking for different things within your genome will be important. So it could also be helpful to start thinking about your genome as a resource rather than your genome sequence and the sequencing of your genome and more as a resource rather than a test.
1: We know that we're a product of nature and nurture, you know, we have our genes that they interact with our environment and the things that we do, our lifestyle. So when people
3: get this kind of information, what do they do with it? So I think the question partly depends on um, what you mean by this information. The research that we've been doing for, we started about 10-15 years ago, um, was looking at how people responded to getting um, Uh, genetic risk information about their risk of lung cancer Um, and so here we're clearly talking about something a disease very clearly has a strong environmental behavioral component smoking Um, but also I think people know they say to us you know I know that my grandmother smoked 20 a day maybe 60 until she was 80 and she didn't die of lung cancer and therefore it's not all behavioural, it's not all caused by smoking, they know that something else is going on. That, and, you know, that thing could well be, of course, your genetic risk, it's what you bring to genetically to the table. We still don't know very much about the genetics of um, diseases like lung cancer, we still don't know, but we know something, we know a lot more than we did and we're going to know more you know, in the coming years. So I think that um, you know, one way to answer that question, is that people already have a, some understanding that disease is complex, life is complex, and that maybe by sort of bringing genetics into the story, that it could actually be a helpful thing, because it is part of the story, and to kind of ignore that or pretend that it's not part of the story, even when it's in the context of something that which is so clearly affected by your behaviour, like lung cancer, smoking, that that may just be something that we have to deal with. For example, the more that we understand about our, our
1: genomes and things like the risk of diseases like cancer, and is there a risk that someone's just going to go, oh, well, it's all in my genes, you know, there's nothing I can do, or, oh, well, my, you know, my granny smoked and, and, and
3: drank like a fish and she was fine, so I don't need to bother. Yeah, I mean, we say so much about this in, in my field, um, and, you know, it has this term sort of genetic determinism, or genetic fatalism, and um, I have to say we absolutely cannot find evidence of it. When we do the empirical research, which we have done, you know, uh, we, we give genetic risk information about lung cancer to smokers, um, albeit, you know, it's, it's, it's very small pieces of risk information, it's influencing your risk this way or that way, a small amount. There is no evidence that whether then we ten, when we tell a smoker that they have a slightly lower risk of lung cancer than somebody else based on their genes, that they then go out and say, oh, well, it's all right, then I can smoke as much as I want. And similarly, when we tell smokers that they have a slightly increased risk of lung cancer, they don't go, oh my goodness, well, it's all in my genes, there's nothing I can do about it. We've seen that in lung cancer, others have seen it in all sorts of areas. We're still at the beginning of research in this field, but I have to say, you know, nobody can find evidence of that so far Um, and so I think it's I do think that's important for people to recognize and I think you know truthfully also I think if some if I tell somebody if I give somebody some genetic risk information and they go off and think that that they go off and think it's safe for them to smoke or they go off and think that they're doomed I've done a terrible job of communicating that information to them and and so clearly it's, uh, it's important we communicate the information well. And I have to say, you know, across all the research studies that I've seen, I have uh, yet to see a study where people have gone off and thought either of those things. So I think empirically the evidence for that, so far, simply isn't there. So you can't use your genome as an excuse for not trying to live a
1: healthy lifestyle? No. That was Saskia Sanderson from UCL and the Icon School of Medicine. And now it's time for a roundup of this month's genetics news. Take a look at your partner, if you have one. Notice anything similar? Well, you definitely would if you're a crow, according to new research from scientists at Uppsala University in Sweden. Writing in the journal Science, the team have discovered that crows pick partners that look like themselves, and that this behavior is rooted in their genetic makeup. Crows come in two colors, black and gray, and they tend to pick partners that are the same. The scientists focused on black carrion crows and grey hooded crows, which both seem to be extremely similar on a genetic level, but are obviously different colours. But there's a small strip of land across Europe and Asia where they interbreed, allowing researchers to study how the populations split. Through careful studies of the two crows genomes and developing feathers, the researchers discovered that out of more than 1 billion DNA letters, the two crows genomes differed significantly in only 82 key regions, 81 of them in genes involved in colour and visual perception. The scientists suggest that the crow's colouring is coupled to their ability to detect it, so they pick similar coloured mates and help to maintain the differences between the populations. The finding helps to answer the puzzle of how new species emerge and become established from slight genetic changes, allowing populations to split into new species over time that can then evolve independently. Writing in the journal Science, a team of US researchers has discovered how the electric eel got its jolt. Electric fish, including electric eels, use modified muscle cells to generate electrical currents for stunning prey, defending themselves, communication and sensing. There are hundreds of species of electric fish worldwide, divided into six different broad families or lineages, and it wasn't known whether their shocking abilities evolved just once a long time ago, or several times more recently in the different groups. The scientists identified the molecular pathways each group uses to generate their electrical organs and discovered that although each of the six groups uses broadly the same biological nuts and bolts to build them, they all evolved the ability independently over the course of time in different environments. Impressively, an electric eel can generate up to 600 volts and is best described by lead researcher Professor Michael Sussman as a frog with a built-in 5.5 foot cattle prod. He and his team now hope their findings will shed light on ways to manipulate muscle cells to generate electrical energy, which might one day be useful for powering bionic devices or other uses. Researchers have uncovered a surprising genetic connection between the development of language in humans and learning in fruit flies, publishing their findings in the journal PLOS One. In 2007, the team of researchers based at the University of Missouri discovered a gene in fruit flies that's very similar to a human gene called FOXP2, which is thought to play a role in human language and learning. In this new work, they studied flies with a modified version of FOXP2 and tested their ability to learn how to do a simple flight-based task, known as operant learning, similar to learning by trial and error. Insects with a faulty version of the gene couldn't learn how to do the task, while normal flies performed just fine. Looking closer, they also found subtle changes in the brains of flies with the modified gene. The ancestors of humans and fruit flies split around 500 million years ago, but because the same gene is conserved in both and seems to have a similar function, the results reveal more about the genetic basis of communication and learning across the animal kingdom. With barbecue season upon us, some unlucky people can expect to find themselves counted among the thousands that get salmonella food poisoning every year in the UK. Most people manage to ride out the infection, but it can be very dangerous and even fatal in the very old and very young. But according to new research published in the journal PLOS Pathogens this month, scientists may have found Salmonella's Achilles heel. The researchers discovered that Salmonella-causing bacteria are highly dependent on a particular nutrient – a combination of an amino acid and sugar called fructose asparagine – found in the gut. Without it, they become a thousand times less effective at sustaining disease than when they're fully fed. Unexpectedly, this is the first time that fructose asparagine has been found to be a food source for any kind of organism, and it's very unusual for bacteria to be so dependent on a single food source. Next, the scientists identified a cluster of five genes responsible for transporting the chemical into the salmonella bacteria and chopping it up so they can use it as fuel. These could potentially be targets for drugs to halt the infection while leaving other good bacteria, which don't depend on fructose asparagine. The team is now working to figure out exactly when this nutrient is most important for salmonella survival and which human foods provide rich sources, which could also help to relieve the misery of food poisoning. But in the meantime, Please do take care over your food hygiene if you're planning a barbie this summer. And finally, eucalyptus trees are more than just food for hungry koalas. Made up of more than 700 species grown in 100 countries around the world, they're also a useful, fast-growing source of biofuels and hardwood, as well as antiseptic oils, not to mention traditional Aboriginal didgeridoos. Now, a consortium of more than 80 researchers from 18 countries have decoded the genome sequence of eucalyptus grandis. Reporting in the journal Nature, the researchers trawled through 36,000 genes homing in on those involved in producing cellulose and lignin, the tough molecules that are used to create paper, pulp, and other biomaterials. The scientists hope that by understanding how eucalyptus trees make these woody fibres, grow so fast, and adapt to different environments, they could shed light on improving trees elsewhere, particularly as they adapt to a changing climate. And, as an added bonus, the researchers also uncovered the genes that create oily molecules called terpenes, responsible for the eucalyptus' distinctive smell. With a bit of tweaking, these terpenes could potentially be used to feed into processes for making jet fuel. So maybe one day your plane trip to see koalas in their native habitat could be fuelled by the trees they feed on. If you want to find out more about these stories, the references are on our website. That's nakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics Podcast with me, Dr Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be finding out whether chromosomes can be glued back together to treat disease and a sketchy gene of the month. But now it's time to return to the subject of genetic testing. Dr Susie Meisel, also at UCL's Health Behaviour Research Centre, spent her PhD finding out whether providing people with genetic test information could help motivate them to lose weight. I started by asking her more generally about some of the challenges of understanding the glut of genetic information we now have.
2: I think at first, when the sequence was revealed, people thought it would be quite, I wouldn't call it simple, they probably thought it's going to be complicated, but from the experience that they had with genetics up to that point, which was mainly Mendelian disorders, um, where you get a certain probability to um, have the disease versus not, I think people really expected that once we know the genetic code, that then we can really like understand why people get ill and that it would be not necessarily there's one gene for this, but ge- generally that they would have a pretty good idea um, why someone is being ill. And then the reality, of course, was very different. I think the more they, they, once the genetic code was revealed, actually, it turned out that it's much more complicated than just, you know, a few genes interacting and this is how you get cancer. I think when we started out, we were quite naive about how complex um, human beings actually are and how complex disease can be. In the area that you did in your PhD was kind of understanding genetic testing and the implications of that for people understanding obesity, tell me more about that work. That was quite interesting because it was more like a proof of principle study, we chose obesity, Um, it's a condition that is familiar to a lot of people, it is very strongly implicated um, by genes but it's not this condition where it's one gene that causes you to um, become overweight. In fact, it is a lot of genes. Um, At that time, when I started my PhD, FTO was the gene that was the best researched one, um, which had a small effect, but on a population level then would have a big impact. And I think this is why we chose it because it's a very emotional issue and for people Um, why they are overweight, why they are at certain weight, why they can't lose weight as easily as other people. So So tell me a bit about the study, you know, what what was the gene variation you were looking at? So FTO, um, which was originally called the fused toe and obesity gene, and now is fat mass and obesity gene, um, is um, a gene which comes in two variants, the higher risk variant um, on an individual level. It causes you, to be about one kilo heavier, so without with um, if your homozygous have two variants of that dis- um, allele, then you are about three kilos heavier and have a 20% lifetime higher lifetime risk to become overweight and obese than someone who hasn't got the higher risk alleles. How did you do the study? I did a randomised control trial um, as part of my PhD which had giving people this sort of genetic test feedback, the FTO result, um, so it's only one gene, and uh, generic weight control advice in the form of a leaflet that we designed specifically for this study. And the intervention group got feedback and advice, and the control group only got the advice leaflet.
1: And what did you find? What were people's attitudes? Did having a gene variation that said they were more likely to be obese go, yep, that's it, I'm going to lose this weight, I'm going to battle it?
2: Yes, um, it was quite interesting because people who did have um, the higher risk variants were indeed more motivated than those who had the lower risk variants. However, there was no difference with those who had the lower risk variants to the control group and so this really indicates that people can be more motivated if they get these higher risk results. However, it doesn't reduce motivation and, and cause disengagement or fa- genetic fatalism. Sort of this: oh, I've got uh, I've got the higher risk gene variants, um, and therefore I can't do anything anyway. And or I don't have this high, the higher risk gene variants and therefore I will be immune to becoming overweight. This is not how people think. And I think that became quite clear.
1: And that's quite interesting because that's almost been a, a sort of slight perception in the media that, oh, you know, you, if you can blame your genes, why bother trying to be healthy?
2: Yes, and that's that's sort of perpetuated. um However, what we found uh, did some research as well with overweight people specifically and their reactions to receiving gene feedback. And, you know, most of them... it took part to kind of learn something about themselves and to understand their condition better. And they really found it was really a relief of guilt and shame and self-blame. So it's not all me and my responsibility. Um, it It is also my biology and I'm battling my biology. I think that sort of realization made them then more motivated to really do go on and do something about it. And... I think that's that's something that is for us as researchers reassuring that people don't have at least for common complex diseases, it doesn't seem necessarily that they have a it's all genes or it's all behavior, but it's more complex, they do understand that very well.
1: But as in your research and in other research that's been done, it's even if people know something and are motivated, it's very hard to actually do something, you know, put the cream cake down go for a run. Do you think that genetic information can actually make people change their behaviour or is it just a, a nice idea?
2: I think from my research, I have to say, um, unfortunately, it seems to be just a nice idea at the moment. Um, we didn't find any impact on behaviour change. However, I'm not sure because, as you said, like behaviour change is a very complex thing. So this was information for one gene for one you know, for a complex disease. And I don't know, having that little bit more information what difference it actually could make.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned that people can uh, know things about their gene and maybe not be motivated to change. But also a a good indicator of what's in our genes is our family history. And as well, you know, you can see that, say, uh, your father had a heart attack, but you may or may not choose to, to do that. And obviously, our genes aren't just our own genes there are families genes too.
2: Yes uh, that's um, a very important issue I think that comes up now with whole genome sequencing especially more and more that of course we've always known that having a close look at your family history would actually be more useful than taking a 23andMe SNP based test for, especially for, for diseases. Um, however of course for whole genome sequencing it's then different because it's not just it's not just your genome it's your family as well and it's a big question about how we communicate and who is communicating this because it might be that you want to choose testing but then your sister doesn't want to so what do we do then um, and if anything is found will we then not tell the sister because she didn't want to know or will we tell the sister and? cause potential distress because she's burdened with something but equally if the person that has had the testing is not telling maybe she will feel guilty or he will feel guilty about not you know communicating that sort of information so I think there are lots of issues that really need to be thought of and sorted out now where whole genome sequencing is really on the horizon and it is definitely here to stay so there's no question about that. And one of the incredible things is how fast things are moving and how uh, slow
1: things like legislation and, and policy are being to catch up. What do you see are the really, really key urgent issues that need to be sorted uh, as quickly as possible, whether that's research or, or policy?
2: It's really important to think about those ethical implications very well if you go down that route of like testing. And it is about consent. How are we consenting people? And it, I think it will really be how do we communicate very complex information to people so they can, they can then make an informed decision about what they w- would choose for themselves, but also perhaps for their families. And do you think we will
1: move towards the kind of the Gattaca scenario where a child will have their genetic test done at
2: birth and, and that will set the course of their life? Well, I'm cautious about that. I, I would say at this point in time, probably not and hopefully not. But I think that genetics will play a much bigger role in medicine um, in years to come. And of course, there's a, some people say the earlier you know, the earlier you can intervene. Um But that's, again, something for legislation and and I think researchers and policymakers to very carefully think about what the implications of that would be also for a child's life. And a child doesn't have the right to consent yet. They can't. So it's the parents. And there are some issues about that as well that one has to think about before we move on to Gattaca. (laughs) That was Susie
1: Meisel from UCL. And here's Harriet Johnson with this month's listener question.
3: Listener Dion Davis says, My daughter has wolf hirschhorn syndrome. It's also referred to as 4P syndrome, and as the name would suggest, the problem lies in the fact that some of her DNA is missing on the P arm of the fourth chromosome, which delays growth physically and mentally. Is there a way to glue the missing part on? My wife happens to have the missing part on her 3P arm because of a balanced chromosomal translocation. Here's Dr. Sarah South from the University of Utah to answer whether missing DNA could be replaced.
0: The short answer is that it's not yet possible to do this for a couple of reasons. There have been some advances in the idea of restoring missing genes back to cells, but these advances have been primarily in situations where there is only a single gene that is not working or missing. And we can use a harmless virus as a way of carrying that gene into some cells because viruses naturally have the ability to integrate the DNA they carry into their host cells. However, viruses can't carry the number of genes that would be missing in a patient with wolf hirschhorn syndrome. Also, viruses only infect a subset of cells, and for this condition, there are many different parts of the body that are affected, and many different cells within the body that need to have these genes in order to function normally. Basically, we're not able to get the number of genes necessary into the cells and to target the number of cells that need to be targeted. The other problem is timing. In some genetic conditions, you may be able to introduce the genes back into those cells, and yet that may still not resolve the clinical symptoms. The clinical symptoms may be there because those specific genes were necessary at an earlier time of development, such as during prenatal development.
1: Thanks to our listener Dion Davis, Dr. Sarah South, and Harriet Johnson. And if you've got any questions about genes, DNA, and genetics, just email me at genetics at the naked And finally, it's time for our gene of the month, and this time it's Scribble. It was originally identified in fruit flies, but similar genes are found across a wide range of organisms, from humans to parasites. Scribble is involved in cell polarity, how cells tell which way is up. This is vital for building a body correctly and also important in processes such as cancer. In fact, Scribble is the type of gene known as a tumour suppressor. Experiments in mice have shown it's normally involved in making breast tissue develop normally and prevents breast cells from developing into cancer. In turn, faults in Scribble increase the chances of breast tumours developing. At the other end of the spectrum, researchers are investigating the molecules that interact with Scribble in schistosome parasitic worms responsible for schistosomiasis. This could shed light on future drugs to treat the disease, which affects more than 2 million people worldwide. That's all for now. I'll be back next month taking a look at the genetics of sight and how researchers are developing new ways to restore vision. If you've got any questions or feedback, you can email me, genetics at the naked You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes.